There's an old story about David Ben-Gurion. One day, one of his ministers burst into his office, out of breath, and cried out, Mr. Prime Minister, I have terrible news. I have in my hands a report that shows that burglaries and prostitution are on the rise. Ben-Gurion looked at him and said, What are you talking about, man? This is great news. We'll know we have become a normal country when Jewish thieves and Jewish prostitutes conduct their business in Hebrew. Israelis have long insisted that they're a normal people living in a normal country in an abnormal part of the world. But of course, that's not entirely true, because Israel is the only country that blends democracy with Judaism. But what kind of Judaism? Is it the secular kind that emphasizes Jewish culture over religion? Or is it an orthodox version in which the Jewish state adheres to the strict views of Jewish law, more reminiscent of a theocracy than a democracy? Ahad Ha'am, one of the great Zionist thinkers, famously said that he wanted a Jewish state and not merely a state of Jews. Israel had achieved borders and government and an economy, but it needed a Jewish identity for its Jewish inhabitants. The Zionist movement envisioned a secular Jewish society free from the strictures of Jewish law. But for Orthodox Jews, the idea of a Judaism devoid of Jewish law is utterly unthinkable. It's not Jewish. And so the answer is that Israel practices both a secular Jewish identity and a religious one. The big question we're exploring over the next two episodes, how do you put the Jewish in the Jewish state? This week, we're looking at the secular side of things, the idea of Judaism as a national identity, not a religion. Next week, we'll get into the religious stuff. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. When Ahad Ha'am talked about needing a Jewish state, and not just a state for Jews, he meant that in contrast to Theodore Herzl's vision. Herzl imagined a political nation, one with borders and international recognition and all the trappings of a modern country. The Jewish state, said Ahad Ha'am, ought to also be a spiritual center for the Jewish people, a place demonstrably and openly Jewish in its national character. But he still meant for a secular Jewish identity, not one bound to the strict confines of Jewish law. Most Israelis weren't opposed to Jewish tradition, beliefs, or theology. They just weren't interested in practicing it. They weren't interested in going to synagogue, weren't interested in organizing their lives around Jewish law, and weren't interested in living their lives in submission to Orthodox rabbis. As we'll see next week, the Orthodox were deeply entwined in politics. For non-Orthodox Israelis, they associated their Jewish identity with a milder adherence to Jewish tradition and culture. But how does the state of Israel both create and reflect this secular, cultural Jewish identity without relying solely on Jewish law? How do you create a specifically Jewish identity without going so overboard that the place becomes, you know, like, too Jewish? Theocracy, bad. Secular Zionist national Jewish identity, good. And for this, the Zionists had at their disposal several tools of secular identity. The Hebrew language, ancient Jewish relics, we all know I love ancient Jewish relics, and the Hebrew Bible itself. So 
So one way of instilling a specifically Jewish identity onto the Israeli one was through language. If you want to ensure assimilation into any kind of culture, language is the way to do it. Now the problem, there's always problems, but the problem was that Biblical Hebrew, upon which modern Hebrew is based, it contains about 7,000 unique words. It picked up a few more thousand as it wound its way through the early rabbinic and medieval periods, but it was still a very limited language. It had been revived really only starting in the late 1880s with Eliezer ben Yehuda. The Oxford English Dictionary, in contrast, contains close to half a million entries. Now, this wasn't a huge problem, as long as when you met your buddy on the street in Tel Aviv, you simply chatted about the biblical commandments, or the life of Moses, or how you failed to follow the word of God. Honestly, the last one does come up sometimes on my birthright trips. But if you wanted to discuss something else, like invite your friend over to your air-conditioned apartment, or to go surfing, or to grab a flight to Europe, well, you were stuck. The problem with Hebrew is that there weren't enough words for a modern society in a modern country. Although they did have zona, the biblical word for prostitute. So you see, it all comes together. In 1953, Israel established the Academy of the Hebrew Language. Its job was to oversee all things Hebrew, researching the history of the language, establishing standards for grammar, setting style guides, and the most fun part, making new Hebrew words. All kinds of things that didn't exist back in biblical days, from the words for camera and machine gun and all kinds of foods, they all needed to be created by the academy and spread throughout Israel's schools and official institutions. The academy is still at work today. In 2019, they approved words for vending machines, certain types of pollution, and the daddy long leg spider, which frankly, I could have done without. The Israeli government saw the use of Hebrew as a quite deliberative act of national identity formation. David Ben-Gurion decreed that every Israeli government official had to Hebraize their name, as he had done when he first immigrated to Palestine. Remember, the left was running the government, and the left was primarily associated with Ashkenazi Jews from Europe. Many of them were immigrants who hadn't changed their names when they moved to Israel. Ben-Gurion's original name was David Gruen, and he demanded that everyone else now follow suit. So, Moshe Shertok, the foreign minister, he became Moshe Sharet. Golda Meyerson, the labor minister, became, famously, Golda Meir. So Hebrew became this major national project to develop a secular Jewish identity, a language unique to this new Jewish state. It was seen as the ultimate way to put down your roots in the Jewish homeland. It was a signal that you had let go of your previous life in exile and were instead embracing assimilation and acculturation into the Israeli Jewish nation, adopting the Israeli tongue and fully Hebraizing yourself as a renewed Jew. So Hebrew became one way to build secular Jewish identity. And there was another. Instead of looking towards the heavens, it actually meant looking to the ground. In the 1950s and 60s, a series of incredible archaeological finds, one after another, captivated the Israeli public. They not only provided a boost for tourism and scholarship, but also for the national Jewish identity. 
They connected modern-day Israelis with their ancient past, proving the long-lasting connection between the Jewish people and the land on which Israel was sitting. In these relics, ruins, and writings, you could hold in your hand thousands of years of Jewish heritage. A heritage that wasn't religious, per se, but historical and heroical. They were explicitly linked to the Zionist ethos of a renewed Jewish homeland based on the renewed Jew. Rising 1,300 feet above the Dead Sea sits the ruins of an ancient complex. It's called Masada, Hebrew for fortress. It was built by the Jewish king and Roman appointee King Herod the Great in the first century before the Common Era. A hundred years later, it was used as the Jewish Alamo, the last stand of a thousand Jewish zealots who fled there during the revolt against the Romans. Besieged with no way out except slavery, the Jews, so the story goes, took their own lives. When the Romans finally breached the walls in the year 73 CE, they found that the warriors, rather than submit to the Romans, had all slain their families before turning their swords on themselves. For the next 1800 years or so, Masada lay in ruined silence atop the mountain, all but forgotten by history. Because suicide is prohibited under Jewish law, the early rabbis purposefully erased Masada from the Jewish historical memory. Rediscovered in the mid-1800s, the Zionist movement began to take an interest in the site as a symbol of Jewish resistance, sacrifice, and modern renewal. By the 1940s, the Israeli archaeologist Shmaria Gutman was leading youth expeditions to the site, climbing the mountain in the pre-dawn hours to watch the sun rise over the Dead Sea and the Jordanian mountains beyond. I mentioned Gutman in an earlier episode. He was made military governor of the Arab town of Lydda after the IDF conquered it during the War of Independence. At the height of the Holocaust in Europe, Gutmann, out in the Judean desert, knew that Zionism and the Jewish people were in desperate need of a heroic symbol that wasn't based on religion. That is, that didn't rely on the divine, as the divine seemed to have abandoned the chosen people at that moment. Some of the Zionist leaders were wary of promoting Masada. After all, it ends in everyone killing themselves before the Roman army. Not the image you want to project as the Jews fight the powerful Nazis. But the Israeli writer Ari Shavit writes that Shmaria Gutman saw Masada differently. Only the young Hebrews willing to die will be able to ensure for themselves a secure and sovereign life, Shavit writes. Only their willingness to fight to the end will prevent their end. In this view, the mass suicide wasn't a defeat, but a victory of the Jews determining their own fate, rather than submitting to the depredations of their conquerors. From the 1940s on, Masada became the geographic symbol of Zionism, a repudiation of the Holocaust, and essential to the new Jewish state's secular identity as the last holdout, the mountain from which the modern Jew could renew their commitment to preserving the Jewish people in defiance of history. Nearly two millennia worth of dirt covered Masada's summit plateau, and it wasn't until the 1960s that a systematic program of archaeology began uncovering its wonders. The expedition was led by Yigal Yadin, one of our warrior gods. A hero of the War of Independence, he served as the IDF's chief of staff, its highest ranking officer in the early 1950s. But after his military career, he returned to his first love, archaeology, and set about digging up half of Israel looking for Jewish heritage. Here he is, in 1982, talking about the importance of Masada. 
for Jews, Israelis living today in Israel, it has a much more another significance, not only an archaeological. It is a challenge, it is a reminder also. It is for this reason that the armored corps of the Israeli army are taking the oath of allegiance to the state of Israel on top of Masada, saying Masada shall not fall again. This is the so-called Masada complex that we have. We want to live free people. In 1947, two Bedouin shepherds along the shore of the Dead Sea stumbled upon ancient jars hidden in a cave in a place called Qumran. Inside they found the remains of seven scrolls written in ancient Hebrew, which they sold to two different antiquities dealers. In 1948, Hebrew University professor Eliezer Sukenik recognized their significance and bought three of the scrolls. The other four had been taken for safekeeping by a Jerusalem-based Syrian Orthodox Archbishop to, of all places, New Jersey. In 1954, he posted an ad in the Wall Street Journal offering to sell them. Professor Sukenik's son, Yigal Yadin, bought them on behalf of the State of Israel. The Bedouin, Professor Sukenik, and Yigal Yadin had all together uncovered one of the single greatest archaeological finds of the 20th century. I talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls back in episode 68, Unsolved Jewish Mysteries, so I won't go into the details again here. But the Dead Sea Scrolls eventually revealed thousands of texts dating back to the last couple centuries before the Common Era, and into the first century at least of the Common Era. They are some of the oldest surviving biblical texts we have, and present a portrait of ancient Jewish life, religion, culture, and history absolutely without equal. Excavations in the desert throughout the 50s and 60s uncovered these thousands and thousands of texts. In 1965, Israel built a complex to house them. I would argue that the shrine of the book, this complex, containing nearly all of the Dead Sea Scrolls and displaying them to the public, is one of the most important Jewish heritage sites in the world today. For instance, on exhibit is the complete scroll of the Book of Isaiah, the single oldest copy ever found, dating to the 2nd century BCE meaning that this scroll was written probably within just a few hundred years of the original. Why that is significant as a symbol is that the book of Isaiah deals with the restoration of the Jewish kingdom, Jerusalem, and the Jewish people after the Babylonian exile. More than 2,500 years later, here the book rests right back in Jerusalem, a potent symbol of the redemption and renewal of the Jewish people through the creation of the state of Israel. The point of all this is that archaeology is not simply a scientific and historical scholarly pursuit, but rather serves the needs of the state in forming a secular Jewish identity. Each new ancient find was another link to Jewish culture. Each new relic reinforced for the Israeli Jews their indelible connection to history, heritage, and Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, beyond what could be achieved by a new border or a new flag. 
When Yigal Yadin found the Bar Kochba letters, it was yet another confirmation that the Zionist ethos of a redeemed Jewish homeland was a continuation and succession of the deep Jewish past, despite the centuries of interruption. In the second century of the Common Era, the Jews staged a last gasp revolt against the Roman occupiers, led by Shimon Bar Kochba. Like Masada in the year 73, the Bar Kochba revolt too was crushed by the Romans in the year 135, the last remnants of Jewish resistance and a Jewish army wiped out for the next 1800 years. The Bar Kochba letters and other artifacts were found in several caves first discovered in the 1950s and then more thoroughly excavated by Yigal Yadin and his team in 1960. As with Masada, the point wasn't that the Bar Kochba revolt had ended in defeat, but that the handwritten letters and other artifacts offered a direct connection between the ancient past and the Zionist outlook. The Israeli state, through its Israeli army, represented the continuation of Bar Kochba and his warriors, both groups resisting what they saw as historical forces conspiring to destroy the Jewish people. The willingness to rise up and risk one's life, to face tyranny and injustice in the pursuit of Jewish national liberation, this was the Israeli national spirit, as expressed through secular Zionism. It's important to note, too, that these archaeological finds were discovered in the desert. Many of the most important sites connected to Judaism as a religion, like the Western Wall in Jerusalem or the Cave of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs in Hebron, they're located in the West Bank, which, remember, was controlled by Jordan from 1948 to 1967, so it was off-limits to Israel. Although things like the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the West Bank, they were found by Bedouin, who sold them to antiquities dealers, who later sold or gave them to Israel. But much of the Judean desert belonged to Israel, so its archaeologists had free reign to go digging. The desert was filled with Jewish historical artifacts, but had few ancient synagogues, and the few that did exist had been unused for thousands of years. So for the secular Jewish state, the desert became a prime location of Jewish heritage, it was a universal space and an ethos that could be accessed by all Jews. You didn't have to be an Orthodox Jew adhering to a strict interpretation of Jewish law in order to approach this kind of Judaism. So you couldn't go pray at the Western Wall because the Arabs had sealed it off, but you could go climb Masada, touch the rocks that the ancient Jews built, sit in the small synagogue where they worshipped, and soak up the stories of Jewish heroes and fighters. Finally, there's the Hebrew Bible itself. The Shrine of the Book Museum in Jerusalem, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are housed, also displays the Aleppo Codex. Written in the 10th century of the Common Era, it is the oldest existing complete Hebrew Bible, written in the city of Tiberias on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and eventually ending up in Aleppo, Syria, where it stayed for 600 years before finding its way to Israel in the 1950s. Now, if you think about it, it might be odd that the oldest Hebrew Bible in existence is kept in the primary cultural institution of the state of Israel, not in a synagogue. After all, isn't the Hebrew Bible religious, as opposed to a secular document? Well, for the Zionists, the Hebrew Bible was the foundational text of Judaism. They read it not as divine instruction, but as literature, history, memory, and heritage, for them, it wasn't the preserve of only the Orthodox Jews, but of all Jews, 
Today, the website of the Shrine of the Book says that the Hebrew Bible is the cornerstone of the Jewish people. For Israel, then, the stories in the Hebrew Bible confirm again and again the Jews' indigenous connection to the land. To live in Israel as a Jew is to partake in a continuum of history that stretches back thousands of years. It's therefore critical to know your Hebrew Bible. Which is why, since even before the state was established, the Jewish community in Palestine emphasized the study of the Hebrew Bible. The kibbutzim, the great bastions of secular socialist ideology and practice, they held Bible literacy contests like some kind of spelling bee. The young winners showered with public praise and local fame. The point of all this is that the secular Zionist effort to put the Jewish in the Jewish state moved Judaism from that of a religious identity to that of a national identity. The Judaism of the secular Zionist state was no longer wedded to the rabbis and their rulings on Jewish law. It wasn't about going to synagogue or worshiping God. Judaism in its national form was determined by the state, its politicians and civil servants making decisions about what words to use, what to teach in schools, what archaeological and historical artifacts were worthy of funding and support. To be Jewish in the secular Zionist nation was to be Jewish simply by dint of your nationality, that is, your Israeli nationality. Outside of Israel, one's Jewish identity is often a question of what one does that is specifically Jewish, like attend a synagogue, or keep kosher, or belong to a local Jewish community. But in secular Israel, it's not about what you do, but about who you are. You're Israeli because you're Jewish, and you're Jewish because you're Israeli. Being Jewish is an expression of national identity. When all around you are Jews, the country celebrates Jewish holidays, the schools teach Jewish history, everything is written in Hebrew, and the museums are filled with Jewish artifacts, then Judaism becomes not a religion that you privately practice at home, but is instead the national culture of the entire country. Zionism in Israel represented a profound shift in Jewish expression that could only take place in a sovereign Jewish state, in the ancient homeland of the Jewish people. For Orthodox Jews, the secular Jewish identity of Israel fell short of the promise of a Jewish nation. For them, Judaism can't be reduced to archaeological relics and street signs in Hebrew. It must be based on Jewish law. From the beginning, the Orthodox sought political power to carve out national policies to define the role of Judaism as a religion in the Jewish state, which raised complicated questions over to whom those laws applied, and to therefore whether Israel is a theocracy. Which is to say, would the Israeli state and its Orthodox rabbis agree on just who exactly is a Jew? Today's music is Victoria Hanna's Aleph Bet song, Itai Armon, and the Faran Ensemble. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next time. Lehit Raot. See you later.